Success with Sabrina Marie. Tommy James has had a stellar career in music. Crystal Blue Persuasion. Crystal Blue Persuasion. I just love that song. Crimson and Clover. Money Money. I think we're alone now. Hanky Panky. Drink of the Line. Sweet Cherry Wine. Mirage. Three Times in Love. 23 gold singles. Five platinum albums. Over 100 million records sold worldwide. And his music's been featured in 75 films, 55 TV shows, and commercials. We're going to get the party started. I'm talking with Tommy James of the Shondells, and we get started right now. Tommy James, this is Blaine Marie. How are you doing today? How are you doing? It's good to talk to you. Thanks. Um, where is this part of New Jersey? Because I'm from Trenton. <laughs> Well, I'm up, up, up north. Uh, Cedar Grove is. Do you know where Clifton is? Yes. It's about five miles from Clifton. Oh, okay. Well, it's great to finally get this wonderful interview with a um, music icon that uh, I used to take records because, I mean, when, when MP3s and, and CDs came out, I used to mess up records and get my, my butt beat. And, and so, <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Like, drop the needle, and she said, that's not what you do. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, you know, we've seen it come through all those different technologies. Started out with vinyl, then went to tapes, then ended up CDs, and uh, now it's online, it's streaming. You know, it's a, been an amazing ride for music, all the yeah. interesting delivery yeah. systems. And I bet you remember 78s, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, I was never on. They were a little before yeah. my time as, as, a, yeah. as, a, as a recording artist. But uh-huh. I had grown up, I had all kinds of 78s. Someone had Kitty given records, me. you know, going back to uh-huh. the early 50s. Those things, the 78s were heavy, uh, uh, a neighbor. Um, and they were made out of uh, Bakelite, I think. Really? The, yeah, the same stuff they made telephones out of. Good it was uh, a Bakelite, um, you know, the the hard surfaces, you know, and then some, they went to plastic and uh, then vinyl. Yeah, those things, if you drop them on your foot, God help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so she said, hey, this here's some Marian Anderson records. I'm like, well, who is that? And I, I went and picked it up and almost fell over. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you know? yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, you came up in the Ohio Midwest area, but I wanted to to talk to you because you came up in an first of all an interesting time mm-hmm. and in interesting places, and your music has been of course uh, covered by so many people. I try to get the real people who actually recorded the originals on my show, and you have a music background. And I thought it was so interesting when I read your book, which is uh, awesome and, and scary at the same time. But I want you to take us back. Where are you from? What was your upbringing like? And what actually um, led you to music? Well, boy, that's a mouthful, too. That's, that's, a, that's <laughs> a bunch of stuff. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. And... Um, uh, my father was in the hotel business, managed a hotel there. We weren't weren't there very long. Uh, moved to South Bend, Indiana, when I was oh, I mean, you know, like one year old, years old, and um, uh, sort of vacillated between South Bend and Niles, Michigan. Uh, Niles was right over the state line. And, uh, of course, South Bend was at the top of Indiana, so it was, you know, one big neighborhood. And uh, I I got into music. I mean, I, I mean, if you really want to, the whole story, how much of this do you want? Um, okay, as much as you want to tell us. All right. Well, my grandfather, when I was four years old, bought me a ukulele for Christmas. And uh, I began playing it and singing and uh, singing stuff that was on the radio that I heard. There was always music in our house. And when I was nine years old, um, I saw Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show and the ukulele went out the window and I begged for a guitar. And my mom bought me a guitar and an acoustic guitar, a very cheap one, but it was mine. And I learned how to play the guitar and sing. Singing was really what I wanted to do. I wasn't really interested in playing lead guitar. I was more interested in singing and strumming. So a year later, when I was 10 years old, I got my first electric guitar. And uh, again, you know, rock and roll was... Uh, Really coming on at that time. This is I was uh, uh, ten years old. This would have been 1957, and uh, uh, learned how to play. And when I was, we moved back to Niles, Michigan. I was in we were in Wisconsin uh, when I learned how to play the guitar. I moved back to Niles, Michigan, and uh, when I was 12 years old in seventh grade, I started my first band. And we played for the uh, variety show in uh, in junior high, junior high school, and got such a response from the audience that we decided to keep the band together and uh, played locally. You know, at sock hops and things like that uh, in Niles. And um, I got a job when I was fourteen in a record shop, and uh, they allowed me to promote my band while I was. Uh, we, by the way, we were called uh, the Tornadoes. Wow! <laughs> and um, when I was 14, I got this job at the local, a local record shop. 
and was able to promote my band out of the record shop. And um, while I was in the record shop, I I had uh, I made friends with a distributor and a disc jockey and all kinds of music people, and I ended up with two small record label deals. Uh, one when I was 14 and one when I was 16. And um, the one where I was 16, I recorded a song called Hanky Panky and it ended up becoming my first hit record. And um, so the record kind of came and went when I was 16 and it was on the local jukeboxes, but then it, we had no distribution, so it died. And then when uh, I was 18, I graduated from high school. I had my group, by the way, all through junior high and high school. And we were playing locally. And um, when I was 18, graduated from high school, and I took my band on the road. And we ended up doing clubs in the Midwest. And uh, one of the clubs I was in, in early 66, uh, went... uh, 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 got closed down because the guy didn't pay his taxes. This isn't right oh in, in the middle of my in my two weeks. Oh and, my uh, So we went home feeling like real losers, and um, uh, but that's how the good Lord works. Because uh, when I got home, this is early '66. Uh, I got a call that changed my life from Pittsburgh. Uh, that this crazy record, Hanky Panky, I had made two years earlier. Um, was sitting at number one in the city of Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, only in America <laughs> could something wow. like this happen. And so they asked me if I would uh, go to Pittsburgh. I couldn't put the original group back together, so I went by myself with the record producer and uh, uh, put a band together in Pittsburgh. It indeed was number one. In Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh was a major market, so it started getting played everywhere else. And I went to New York a week later, and um, we got a yes from all the record companies, from Columbia, Epic, and RCA, and uh, Atlantic. And the last place we took the record to was Roulette Records. Mm-hmm. And... and um, uh, the next morning, I, th- I figured we were going to sign with CBS or one of the major labels. And the next morning, I get a call from all the record companies that had said yes the day before and uh, saying, listen, Tom, we got a pass. And I said, what do you mean you got a pass? I thought we had a deal. And finally, Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic Records told me the truth that Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, oh. um, had called all the other labels and uh, backed them down. Said, "This is my record. Back off." <laughs> that's how. That's how he talks. To <laughs> oh my god! So uh, at any rate, we I was a, we were apparently going to be on roulette. Um, and so uh, we signed with roulette, and uh, they took Hanky Panky to number one in the nation, and that began my career. So, uh, but um, but the problem was the problem uh-huh. the problem was that unbeknownst to us, when we signed with Roulette, uh-huh. Roulette w- was not only a functioning record company, but it was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. We oh, learned that incrementally, and that's the basis of our book and the movie and 
So I'm I out of breath. I wanted to ask you before. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. The answer was something. bigger than the question. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, though, um, before you get to 66, you are you talked about having bands, and uh, you had various um, personnel changes. You had to learn to deal with a lot of different moving around, dealing with people. And you've mm-hmm. met some great mentors along the way. But before you get to roulette, you're talking about small record labels, very small yeah. record labels. And you mentioned Hanky Panky, which was written by a duo that is quite famous in terms of music writing. But in that time, you're getting into music. Um, people are realizing you can have not only the dances, you can have the dance shows, you can have these kids who want to, you know, get their record deals, etc. What was that time coming out of the 50s? Because you mentioned, you know, Elvis and other things. And then getting a record deal. There was a lot going on in music, but the styles and everything changed. What changed with you between, say, 56 and 66 in terms of music style because you had to find your own niche. Oh, boy. Well, of course, in 1956, I was nine years old, and so I didn't really have a style. I was music. That was the first generation of rock and rollers. And um, rock and roll was just getting started, 56 and 57. And my first rock and roll heroes, of course, were... Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and, um, oh, you know, Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent and all those early guys. Uh, that's what I first learned on guitar and what I came up with. And then uh, as time progressed into the 1960s, um, you know, rock and roll was uh, evolving and uh, first R&B artists that were really strong came on at the same time and uh, um, I would say that the early 1960s were basically a lot of um, R&B and uh, uh, a lot of vocal groups, a lot of doo-wop groups of course had come out of the 50s into the 60s and then of course the Beatles. All of a sudden, in '63, uh, late '63, came out and uh, um, changed everything. You know, yeah. suddenly, suddenly it was all about groups with hair and uh, and boots, <laughs> and they changed the look, they changed the style of music. Um, uh, a lot of the British bands, uh, the Stones and the Kinks. Uh, and all those groups had a very different, um, a very different take on rock and roll than the rockabilly, doo-wop stuff that had come out of the United States. I've often looked at the British acts and I say, you know, uh, rock and roll is like a, a songwriting team. It's like two songwriters getting together, the Americans and the Brits. And, um, banging out something that they called rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And um, so by 1966, when I came on the scene, um, we had been all through that stuff. And I can't honestly say that I f- 
thought we had a style, but it turns out uh, with our first hit, Hanky Panky, that we did. And they later called it Garage Rock. Mm-hmm. Very amateur sounding and uh, uh, sort of everything was mono. There was nothing sophisticated about uh, uh, that music. 1965 and 66 were filled with Garage Rock. Um, so many groups there were so many bands forming and they were young so they played what they knew (laughs) three chords Mm -hmm. and um, that became uh, the rage by 66 there were so many garage bands I mean I can name them all but you know the point was that it was very unsophisticated guitar rock and um, 67, of course, psychedelic music came in and things, you know, crunch guitar and, uh, you know, things were constantly changing. And uh, I, I, that's what really made rock and roll so exciting is that it was, it was a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, there was always something new. Uh, everybody that came along uh, brought something new to the table. Uh, radio was, was in its prime, AM radio, and it was, um, really uh, incredible that, that radio, uh, promoted the groups, and the groups promoted the labels, and the labels were, you know, everybody was on the same page. And, uh, it was an exciting moment. When I, the year I graduated from high school, 1965, was an amazing year because all of a sudden it was the biggest graduating class in America ever before mm-hmm. or since. And, wow. you know, suddenly 30 million baby boom kids with money in their pockets were unleashed on the country and drove rock and roll like, like nothing ever did. Suddenly this was a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that changed everything, too, because... Uh, a year and a half later, or two years later, suddenly FM stations were playing rock and roll. Um, uh, we're, we we went from four tracks to twenty-four tracks. The technology wow. technology from the space program was coming into the recording studios. Um, it was just an, an amazing moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, all that stuff. All that stuff happened at the very at at the same time. All of that happened when I, when I think of 1966 to 1969. I mean, it's just incredible uh, how things changed. And they call There's it a lot of culture. different, lots of different types of music though. At in the 60s, mm-hmm. uh, from my study. Every you had so much of a blending of different types of music. You mentioned psychedelic, and then mm-hmm. you had um, Procoharum and and just that whole different vibe. You had Hendrix, funk, yeah, you know, Sly and the Family yeah. Stone. Stone, oh yeah. I mean, it's just um, a, you had a blending of a whole bitch, a bunch of things towards the mid to in uh, to the end. Uh huh. And Motown, I think, actually. Gave the British invasion a run for its money. I well, think it they were one it of the few. That's that's correct. And but in the end, it all kind of got homogenized. 
mm-hmm. on radio. Top 40 consisted of all those different types of music. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if, if you were growing up listening to radio, you were hearing uh, all those different kinds of music all blended together on one, awesome. on one chart. What was your first major exposure after Hanky Panky? Major exposure? You mean well? Uh, we, yeah, television. We, we had um, we had twenty three gold gold singles, and uh, m- most of them were in a row. I mean, we had you know once Hanky Panky started, there was just a train of 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 our music. We we had the attention of radio for all that time. Thankfully, and um, you know, we just uh, on roulette. We just had one hit after the other. We ended up doing 110 million records at roulette, and uh, had 23 gold singles and nine platinum albums, and uh, it was an amazing run. And then that continued on into the 70s when Shondells and I parted company. Um, mm-hmm. So it was really an, an amazing. Uh, an amazing run, and I'm very thankful for it. You're going into the music industry. I remember reading that, you know, you basically there are 40 hours with no sleep. Were you really surprised when um, Panky Panky number one took off, and then you had all the different um, uh, song, oh God, you know, yes. hit, all the different hits. I mean, what are the, some of the things that you actually learned? Because you, you said that you partook in, in some of the uh, interesting things of the 60s and, and uh, in growing up. And, and in some ways, growing up early in that you had a band. You were already working as a teenager. You you had income coming in. You that's know, true. So you kind of, and that, that's kind of rare. It's not like the corporatized stuff that came along and the the formulated stuff. You you, you know you you had a mom and pop you know roulette record. You, you mentioned the the you know the mob and all that other stuff. But that was a different. Uh, that's that that's totally different than the easy easy listening stuff we got. Later well, the the amazing thing is I got to learn my craft because yes. from every nook and cranny of the record mm-hmm. business because. Right. There was no one else to do it. If we had gone, I can tell you right now, if we had gone with Columbia, Atlantic, or, you know, RCA, one of the corporate labels, I can tell you right now that we would have been lucky with a record like Hanky Panky to have been a one-hit wonder because uh-huh. we would have immediately been handed over to an in-house A&R man uh, uh, that probably is the last time you'd ever heard from us. At Roulette, they actually needed us. And mm-hmm. so we were basically given the keys to the candy store and said, do whatever you can do. And so I was allowed to learn from street level up how the record business worked, the distributors. the And I, I had learned a lot at the, at the uh, record store where I worked. It was amazing. what That was like going to college. Um, and I, I learned how we did everything. I, 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 we had to do everything because there was no one at Roulette to do it but us. And we, I learned how to write songs. I learned how to produce records. I learned how to uh, design album covers. I, le- I, I learned, you know, uh, how to make how to make music, how to how to how to package music and sell it. 
um, to our fans. I, I learned how to do all that stuff. Uh, just the distribution network in the United States was was amazing. I always was amazed that, and these were basically street guys. The record business was made up of street guys, and yes. I was amazed how how they could, uh, you know, you could you could make a record on Monday, and by Friday it was in the stores uh, if if everything went right it was in the stores and on the radio mm-hmm. i mean it, it, it's 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 amazing the machine that these street guys put together oh, sure. my people were in the music industry in the 60s and the um label golden world was bought out by motown in detroit I'll be there. they they had um tony mccauley uh, of the reflections uh-huh. Uh, they had an early George Clinton in the parliaments with an S, like the cigarette. Oh, yeah. They had a little Carl Carlton and the Dynamics, which were the Dramatics. Uh, uh-huh. So they had groups, and you're right, uh, when you were learning from the street, uh, you know, and learning how to sell, how to market, um, I think that actually makes for bigger success because it's not uh, corporatized so much. If you well, that's at, true. Um, that's yeah, true, and it yeah. makes it all the more wondrous how how these people pulled this off. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, it, it and, took real yeah. smarts to do that, and and um, uh, the whole idea of selling music to teenagers, which is basically what we're talking about. Uh, I mean, you know, that was sort of the center of gravity. And and it just amazes me uh, to this day how uh, how difficult that was to do, and they did it with with ease. I have so many people working for me now. I mean, one in particular who worked at Roulette, who marketed music at Roulette. He was a marketeer. He's also a bag man. <laughs> but, wow. but his name is Ira Leslie, and he. Um, uh, is still working for me today. You know, he he worked when I was an artist at Roulette for Morris Levy, but he's working for us today. And um, he's one of the guys on the team. And we have our own label now. Of course, everything is so different, but, you know, because uh, of the Internet. But uh, I'm, I just, uh, I love the record business. I always have, since I was a tiny little kid. And I am absolutely uh, grateful to the good Lord and the fans for the kind of longevity we've had. And the yes. ability to, uh, you know, we're, we're still, we sell probably a million and a half pieces a year of, uh, you know, of, of the old stuff and the new stuff. We have new product coming out every now and then. Awesome. Go ahead. I wanted to know, um, the people who have re-recorded your music, um, Mm -hmm. you had a a succession of people in the 80s, 90s that were, uh, you know, re-recording your music, and you were also being featured in feature films and television. It's got to be a compliment to actually know that not only the generation in which you're in, there's so many other generations who know your music. Well, I'll tell you, I look out at our concert crowd now, and I literally see three generations of people that don't necessarily know each other, but they know the music. 
and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Uh, that's just a, an amazing thing. It allows us, of course, to keep going and to put out music. And to, I've been doing this. I've been, I've been doing this since I was, I know, professionally since I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. I thought it's the equivalent of being a 76 year old paper boy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, got, hey, the, I got the same job. I got the same job as when I was thirteen. So, I mean, it's, awesome. it's a wonderful thing to be able to do what you love for your whole life and make money at it. It really is. Well, you learned some hard knocks um, of not getting your due, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you in this interview. You knew that you were being cheated of your royalties, etc. And newer art artists, they understand the business model, especially rappers. They understand because some of their people who are grand people were also musicians. I mm-hmm. want you to talk a little bit about that, um, just doing the music and realizing uh, somebody's really just treating you like crap and you're not getting your due. Well, but, uh, but by the same token, believe me, I've had, to, I've had a, a, a long time to square that in my head because... Um, the truth is that hooking up with Morris Levy and Roulette Records was such a double-edged sword mm-hmm. because on one hand, uh, doing business with them was a disaster. I mean, there was no such thing as business. You were a good earner. That's why, you know, mm-hmm. the, the idea, you know, that Morris was every bit a gangster, no doubt about it. But by the same token, if it hadn't have been for Morris Levy and Roulette, there wouldn't be a Tommy James. And that's true. Wow. Um, wow. So i got to balance all that in my head. Every time I go to say something really nasty about Roulette, I, I well, but this is, this is where the good Lord put me. And as a result, I, it, uh, Morris Levy, you know, put food on my table and... And, uh, you know, not intentionally, <laughs> in a roof right. over my head for 60 years. And, <laughs> you know, not because he was such a good guy, but because he was so selfish. And so I look at the whole scene with Roulette. I mean, he got me out of Vietnam, for example. Mm-hmm. Things that he probably saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, just a quick story. One of his best friends... Morris, believe it or not, sat on the board of directors of Chemical Bank. Can you believe wow. it? You talk about the fox garden the hen house, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And his best friend on the board of directors happened to be the head of selective service in New York. And wow. I ended up getting out of out of a, what was, what was going to be a draft for sure in 1960. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we should write that. But, I mean, it is interesting. I don't want right. to anger any veterans, but um, he probably saved my life. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Um, and, of course, we were making money from concerts and from uh, uh, BMI, Airplay, and, and uh, all that stuff. Uh, but mechanical royalties were just weren't not going to happen. They just weren't mm-hmm. going to happen. And we knew if you pushed it too far, some ugly stuff could happen. Mm-hmm. So there was fear behind all that stuff, too. 
but it was, uh, but we, but we had to constantly make decisions. Do we try to get out of this thing? Do we try to uh, get out of our contract? Do we, you know, what do we do? Because we were having such success that we would have never had anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So, wow. you know, what's, what's more important? And I, I basically made the decision to stay there. Plus, now I get to talk about it. <laughs> you know, I get to write books. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, honestly, your music, yeah, yeah, the know, music I, that you're done, yeah, you get to write, and also the terminology of "I love ball of fire," um, "crimson and clover." There's so much I wanted to ask about some of these titles and uh, color red, uh, fire, um, crystal blue. H- how did you come up with these? titles mirage well you know as a as a songwriter you're always looking for interesting provocative titles always uh-huh. especially in the 60s and um uh, i remember you know i wrote a song called meet the comer i got off a matchbook cover you know wow. rc cola <laughs> um <laughs> I remember, you know, you never know where the next title's going to come from. Could be a billboard, could be a conversation you're having with somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you're always looking for interesting titles. Crystal Blue Persuasion came at me totally unexpectedly. Um, we were playing a college in Atlanta in 69, and this nerdy little kid comes up to me, a student comes up to me, uh, big thick glasses with a piece of paper and he hands me this poem that he wrote he said hey just take this with you would you just read my poem and it was about the book of Revelation in the Bible wow it was called Crystal Persuasion and I said Crystal Persuasion good lord there's a great combination of words I don't know what the hell it means but sounds <laughs> sounds provocative and um, it's got a cool image to it. So we went back to the hotel and we wrote. And I needed an extra word for the to make everything rhyme, to make it, you know, the tempo right and everything. And so it needed to be one syllable. And we just said, blue, crystal blue persuade. That is how, and, you know, people think that you spend weeks thinking up these tiles. <laughs> Crimson and Clover is another one. And then Crystal Blue was, we took it back and we recorded it that week. Crystal Blue Persuasion. And we rewrote it and, uh, uh, about, but it had a, a religious overtone to it. And, uh, like the kid's poem, I never saw or heard from the kid again. Wow. But that's how that, that title came. Crimson and Clover, I, were just two of my favorite words that I put together. I woke up early one morning and just started they started going through my head I just was thinking of just two provocative words that sounded like they meant something together I loved the way they rolled off my tongue I just loved the sound it sounded like it meant something and then we made it mean something mm-hmm. you know I yeah. mean, that's that's really how how these things come about uh, these kind of whimsical thoughts or whimsical set of words that uh, 
they sound good. And if you're a writer and if you're thinking poetically and artistically, those things hit you in the face like a pie sometimes. Yeah, I just noticed that, you know, that was the blue, but then I say, okay, sweet cherry wine, then crimson, and then ball of fire. I'm like, okay, I feel imagery when I uh-huh. read <laughs> the, the title. Yeah, that's I'm true. Like, hmm. Why yes, is indeed. that? Is that your well, favorite color, or, you know, are those your favorite? Um, are you talking about crimson? Yeah, crimson or uh, sweet cherry wine, uh, you know. Ball well, sweet cherry wine was was uh, was about uh, the blood of Jesus, right? Now, yeah, and it's of course, you know, there was no such thing as being politically incorrect back then. Uh, you can you know, today I don't know if you could get a song like that played. It's sure. I, I'm so I'm sorry to say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I don't know that you could write a religious song like that today and get on contemporary radio. It's too bad, but that's... You know, I always thought that your singles were sort of a snapshot of where you're coming from, of your life at that any given moment. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they were to me. Mm-hmm. I was becoming a Christian at that point. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, Dragging the line, I was mm-hmm. reading about... Um, you know, you were saying that you had the number one song, yet you, it was on a compilation, I guess, K-Tel, whatever, yes. was being devalued at the same Correct. time. <laughs> that really upset me, yes. Well, you know, Dragon Line was a B-side. Mm. And it was the B-side of a song called Church Street Soul Revival. Wow. And um, uh, it was the first time I had ever gotten more play that I had ever picked the wrong side, where I, uh, you know, where we start radio started playing the flip side, <laughs> and that had never happened to me before. And so, um, in fact, we we intentionally would put records that we thought were uh, were something less on the B side, so that we wouldn't get double airplay. And because uh, uh, you didn't want to throw a single away, mm-hmm. so at any rate, um, that was dragging the line. And suddenly we're getting airplay on the B side. So I took it back in the studio and I put some horns on it and uh, remixed it and uh, sort of threw a little tape delay all over the all over the record, so it kind of throbbed. And uh, I loved the hypnotic bass line. My friend mm-hmm. played bass on the record, Bob King. And mm-hmm. uh, we made tape loops of, we did one verse, and we did tape loops of that verse. And um, that's why it's so hypnotic. And uh, when we, I took it back in the studio, we threw some horns on it. And remixed it and re-released it as a single, as an A-side, and it went number one. That's the first time I ever got fooled like that. Wow. <laughs> wow. Now, Money Money, um, classic, um, an interesting mix. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, it, it, um, was there a party going on there? What was going on? Yeah, I mean, it literally <laughs> was. A, 
we dragged in people off the street. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was a party that got captured on tape. That that really is the truth. All of our my friends, my musician friends and stuff were down in the studio, brought brought them in and for hand claps and screams and all the rest of the stuff. But yeah, Moni was a well. We had started. I had started the song, the the record. Uh, it was during we my my main studio, Allegro was shut down for updating in 1968. They're updating to uh, 24 tracks. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, I went down to another studio, Brooks Arthur. Do you know who Brooks Arthur is? I've the heard engineer. the name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a very famous engineer and producer. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, we started, uh, this crazy little, I wanted, we, I wanted to do a throwback record to the early 60s, you know, like Gary U.S. Bonds or Mitch Ryder and, uh, you know, just a, a, a crazy rock and roll song that I used to love those kind of records, Louie Louie and songs like that that would put people on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. That was almost a religious experience to me. And so we st we wanted to make a record like that, but in '68 everybody was too stoned to be, make be making records like that, you know. <laughs> Things <laughs> nobody danced; they couldn't get up. So, um, what happened was uh, we just started throwing this th little three chord thing together, and it got kind of complicated. But we would we 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 just literally through it was a combination of all those records that uh, I loved when I was a young teenager playing in a playing in sock hops and stuff it was Louie Louie and oh god California Sun and all those fun records all kind of combined and so um, at the you know I was the night I was going to do the lead vocal we still had no title. We we had this great track, and we had the words written, of course, nonsensical lyrics and silliness. But um, we had no title, and we wanted to name it a, a girl's name. And I needed a two-syllable girl's name, and everything we came up with sounded so stupid. And uh, <laughs> so Richie Cordell, my songwriting partner, and I are up at my apartment in Manhattan in Midtown and we throw our guitars down and we just can't come up with anything and I gotta do the vocal the next night so um, we walk out of my terrace and we look up at the night sky and the first thing our eyes fall on is the Mutual of New York Insurance Company wow. M-O-N-Y with the dollar sign in the middle of the O and it gave you the time and the weather and, and both of us just started laughing because that was so perfect. Money. It was just so perfect. It hadn't been used before. We're looking for like a Sloopy or a Boney Maroney or something like that. <laughs> so uh, we just started laughing. That was the perfect title. I've often said if I'd have been looking in the other direction, that could have been called Hotel Taft. Real easy. We were desperate. Wow. Maybe e equitable. But Moni was it, and that's what we called the tune, and uh, that was the hit.
That's a true story. I, uh, it sounds like it was made up by a press agent, but it's a true story. I looked on the um, writers, and I mentioned Lenny May. I love the song, and uh, it's been redone. But somebody on that, um, as a songwriter, I actually found a video for, and you're going to find this name not even known to a lot of people. The guy recorded Montego Bay, named Bobby, Bobby Bloom. Yes, and uh, that voice of his. Um, how did Wasn't he become a songwriter? If, yes. You know, he was he was murdered. You know, in the early seventies. And wow. uh, he, w- he was just signed by, uh, oh, God, who was the outfit that uh, had the Bee Gees. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Robert Stigwood. Okay. Robert Stigwood. And uh, uh, he, he was on his way to being a superstar. He had a he great sang. voice. He, he has an amazing voice, that R&B voice. And uh, a good-looking kid. He was a and he was a friend of mine. And uh, he would hang out at the studio and do stuff. And uh, he came up with that. Ooh, I love you, moany, moan, moan, moan. That's Bobby. Came up wow. with that stuff. And it was so perfect. We used we used it. We just used it in the middle of the song. And uh, another example of some whimsical thing that just works yeah and that's what happens to a lot of uh, artists like yourself artists like a Bobby Bloom it just something that just happens and I wanted to ask you in the 60s and 70s we're having uh, different types of music different types of looks it's not corporatized quite so much at yeah. that time and I think that's that's why people and even you talk about three or four generations knowing your music probably even more. Uh, it's because it wasn't a c- cookie cutter, or you know, it, it just well, that's happened. right. Any anything could happen. Um, mm-hmm. and it, you just let it, and uh, uh, you never know what little magical thing was going to happen next. Um, that's what I loved about rock and roll back then, is because. Uh, you go into the studio, uh, you uh, start fooling around, you come up with something, and all of a sudden it's a hit record. So many hits were accidents, you mm-hmm. know, pure accidents. You can't plan out a hit record because just making them or listening to them, what's going to be a hit? Today, of course, that's, you know, that as you may try to manufacture records, and some are great, some are good, but... Um, of course, you had everybody on your side back then. You had radio and TV were on, all on your side. The fans, there were so many of them. And, you know, 12 radio stations could cover the whole country, AM 50,000-watt stations. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it was just a, an amazing time. We didn't realize how amazing it was when we were in the middle of it because we were living it. But it's it's you can look at it now and see what an amazing moment that was in our history. The music industry has changed so oh so much though. Um, you get people maybe like a Bruno Mars, and then there are others like her, and and there are many others that I I, not, I can't even think of right now that are trying to bring back that um, that magic. Of, I know, uh, I know, and, that spon- yeah. spontaneous magic. I know. Mm-hmm. Well, some of them are able to. There's been a lot of great artists. Uh, 
But the audience is different, too. It's not right. just the, the industry. The audience is very different. And, um, you know, you put it all together, it's just another time. And we're, there's a, there's a lot of neat stuff that's going on now. Actually, if you just kind of, you know, uh, get the dust out of your eyes and, and look, uh, there's some neat stuff going on, but we're, we're in another time and another age. And, uh, uh, however, I look out at our, with, at concerts. Concerts haven't changed. Right. Live music is amazingly, the same. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, our crowds, we, you know, we sell out everywhere we go. There's the, the crowds are great. There's three generations of them. And um, so that that thing between the artists and the fans, that live thing, is as alive as it's ever been. Do and, you like performing uh, live or being in the studio or both? Both. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. We're able, you know, we just went top 20 in Billboard with uh, an album called Alive. And mm-hmm. uh, it was our first time on the charts in 10 years. And the wow. two singles the two singles from the album uh, uh, both went top 20. AC, I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I am an adult, after all, you're doing, you know. <laughs> so, and then... <laughs> I'm adult and I am contemporary. Okay. Um, cool. Well, I, I and you know I, I love doing the radio show up at uh, Sirius. We're on every mm-hmm. week. Awesome. I've been doing that for six years, and um, uh, you know they, I can play anything I want. They want me to play more of my own view. I said, can I go to jail for that? <laughs> 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 not satellite play whatever you want so okay okay well you know the idea of an artist with his own show playing his own music i don't know there's something something that seems very uh unkosher about that but i'm uh, able I to do it's it great that's awesome i do too <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you get to play your music, but you know those people, a lot of the music. Who were you inspired by, uh, you know, coming up as an artist after you made it? You know, who did you get to actually meet? Oh, God, everybody. Uh, Just about. I mean, I'd say 90% of the artists that that made rock and roll happen, um, I became either friends with or got to meet. And uh, so it's a. I, I've had a. I've had a wonderful time in this business. I really, really have. Do you regret not doing? Um. Um. What do you call it? Uh, doing going to Woodstock? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I told the story in the book, and it, you know it's true. Um, I don't know. I think I've gotten more mileage out of the story than I would have if I'd actually played Woodstock. I'm being a bit facetious, but um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I you know, it's it's you know, saying that I, I I was asked to play Woodstock and turned it down. I don't know. There's something kind of cool about that. <laughs> you didn't need Not, it, I guess, huh? I guess, I guess so. And you know, you know, we're we're doing the movie. 
the book is being I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it's going to be interesting to find someone to actually play the Tommy James, the Tommy well, James. Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I've, that's one thing I got to leave to the grown-ups. <laughs> I got to <laughs> leave to, because I, uh, you know, it's just, I don't know. These, there's so many great young actors out that, mm-hmm started out in rock bands. I don't know what the deal is, but so many talented young actors who can sing and play. Right. And, and, uh, you know, Jamie Foxx sort of raised the bar with the movie Ray. You're right about that. He he started out as a singer. Yeah, he sang his own songs. He sounded like Ray Charles. And and, uh, he started looking like him. I mean, it was incredible. And so he really pulled off an amazing thing there. And I think that's the way it's going to be for artists that are attempting to play living people that, that the public knows. It's, uh, so, I mean, and these, the thing of it is these young casting directors are so hip. They, they, uh, they know everybody that's out there now. Finding a Morris Levy, uh, was, uh, is was is going to be a bit of a challenge because it's got to be somebody he's got to play that character. It can't be. I've seen Morris Levy portrayed in a couple of other movies and it was silly. You know, you got to wow. find the right guy to, who's scary. But and I don't believe you can, you know, see De Niro again playing another mob guy. I don't think that would work either. I don't think he'd scare anybody. I think he's got to be scary. He's got to be fairly unknown. And um, uh, because you're not scared yeah. of somebody you know as much, you know it's got to be it's got to be sort of a, a trick. I don't think it's people know what that mob person. element. Uh, they don't know what that. A couple generations don't know what they they see movies, they see the Goodfellas, they see, but they really don't know what that right. element is or uh, right. was about. That, is and that the music industry true. was run by, you know, yeah. whatever. Group. Now, when you found out, were you on pins and needles? I would be on pins. And well, needles. yeah, I mean, but, but I, well, I was I was too young to be as scared as I should have been. Um, we when we the first inclination we had that there was something going on is um, we'd meet people in Morris's office. We'd meet somebody in Morris's office. And uh, a week later, we'd see him on TV doing the perp walk, you know, taking the cops, taking him out of a warehouse in New Jersey or something. Isn't that the guy we just met up in Morrison? And it would be, of course. And that's the sort of stuff that kept happening. And, you know, these guys, you know, we we met like famous mobsters up in Morris's office, people we'd seen on the news. And... um, uh, you know, and, and gradually we found out who we were dealing with. It was the Genovese Bunch. And um, so there was a lot of stuff we couldn't talk about. In fact, when I was doing the book, we, we, we were, Martin Fitzpatrick, my co-author and myself, sat down, we, you know, for years people have been asking me to do a book. And we were going to write a book called Crimson and Clover, and it was going to be about you know, songwriting and making hits and being in the studio and stuff. But 
about a third of the way into it, we realized that if we don't tell the roulette story, which really is the story, um, we're cheating ourselves and everybody else. And I was nervous about doing that because some of these guys were still walking around. Wow. And um, so I waited till uh, the last of them passed on, and that was Vinny the Chin Gigante, who died in prison. And we felt that we could finish the book then and uh, tell the truth. Wow, you're uh, like the, I think the third person that's told me some interestingly frightening things. Joey D told me some stuff and, and, um, you know, the late Herb Cox, uh, the Cleftones told me some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, he, was on, he was on, he was on G Records, which is Morris's partner, George Goldner, and it was distributed by Morris. Mm-hmm. G Records. But, um, so anyway, that, you know, we constantly were, as I said, how do we, how are we going to deal with these people? And I think the good Lord was watching over me pretty good. Amen. In fact, I know it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're, you're still with us today. You're doing great things. What is your summer looking like? Are you on tour? Or oh, yeah. What's going on? Yeah, we're, we're all over the country this year. And... uh Come to our website. We got the list of dates, and mm-hmm. we're all over. And uh, um, well, of course, the movie's gone. You know, it's coming together. Our, our you know, our producer is uh, Barbara Defina, who produced Goodfellas yeah. uh-huh. and um, Casino mm-hmm. and Hugo a couple of years ago, back with Martin Scorsese and. Um, Oh, God, a string of terrific movies. She's great. Um, and Kathleen Marshall is directing. And uh, the screenplay was done by Matthew Stone. And so it's 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 going to be fun. They're in the casting phase now, and it's fun watching all this come together. But, you know, the technical people, these guys are all stars in their own right. Mm-hmm. And getting everybody together at one time is really amazing and that's Barbara's doing that mm-hmm. and the money and everything else and that's been done and so I'm you know watching all this come together I'm co-producing this thing but I'm really a spectator and uh, I'm going to be in charge of all the studio stuff mm-hmm. the Hall of Fames Rock and Roll Hall of Fame I don't believe you're in it why not well, you know when I'd like it to happen, honestly? I would love it to happen when the movie comes out. I think that would be an awesome one-two punch. I mean, you're one of the few groups that has had, uh, you know, all these hits. And, you know, there's some, don't get me wrong, You could, I guess you can become a star with one, like, you know, Percy Sledge, when a man loves a lot. I, I, I get that. But <laughs> over a period of seven, eight years, you and more, you've had um, hits that have, have shaped a generation and generations, plural. So I think you I should say there. It's very much like the fact that Steven Spielberg has never gotten an Oscar. I think or Diana Ross has never gotten a uh, Grammy. 
right? Um, I think it's just a combination of, you know, they they liked starving artists, and they, they you know artists that aren't you know if 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 you have too much success, you're too commercial. That's how it's viewed. Wow. Wow, I've never seen, I, I, I've never heard that. That's that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting take. And if you're too commercial, you're not cool. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. It's kind of a, a human thing. Um, but, you know, our day will come when I think it's kind of unseemly to go around complaining that you're not in the Hall of Fame. Let let other people do that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I feel like uh, the best thing to do is to just keep quiet. And when it's my turn, we'll do It'll it. It'll happen. Yeah. Yeah. The only reason I mention the Hall of Fame, a lot of people don't um, actually get any of that until they're gone. You know, That's completely true. gone. Yeah. And um, I've had, you know, I, I, I had... Um, Several people who on the show that were able to get there do, and, and others that didn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, like say um, Patsy Cline. Did she really know that people loved her? You know, when she was alive, right? To now, no, that's, that's you know. a good point. You, you know, you've got a lot of that going on. So I thought I would mention that because you see these Hall of Fames and Walk of Fames and different things, and you ha- but you have been honored in the Garden State and many other places. So um, I just thought I would mention that to your fans well, thank out you. <laughs> thank you very much. But I meant what I said. I think it would be great if it could happen um, around the movie. I think that would be wonderful. As for all that, the artists, that, that could really yeah, happen. I think that you're deserving of that. And I think that the movie, I'm, I can't wait to see that, so I hope to keep in touch or your people, you know, let me know when, sure. when that may happen. That would be really cool. Um, I think we're looking at least another two years because another two, uh, you know, okay. you know, COVID shut down Hollywood for almost three years. Right. And now it's kind of up and running again and things are starting to happen. Just got a new movie. <laughs> we've had yeah. we've had 67 movies from, wow. from Sony reps me in, uh, uh, you know, films and and um TV and commercials that when I say represents me I mean my my music and um we've been so lucky we've had over 300 cover versions of our stuff done from Prince to Dolly Parton to the Boston Pops and um uh, so uh that's mostly the work of Sony they've been terrific to us and um uh, they just brought another another movie. They just brought uh, the, last night, as a matter of fact, the, the Jennifer Lawrence movie, uh, Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, Columbia Pictures doing it, uh, uh, and uh, uh, it, they're using Dragon the Line as the theme. Mm-hmm. You know the opening credits. Wow! And uh, do you know I can't think of the damn title. <laughs> I, I can't think of a damn title. I can't well, believe it. Lawrence, it'll be it'll it'll be a hit. You know, I I, I think I, 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 it's, it's uh, no hard feelings or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's name. But anyway, uh, is, my favorite new song is Ball of Fire. Well, thank you. 
That's uh, we do that in concert. We do that in concert. That was uh, kind of an apocalyptic mm-hmm. view of New York. That's, New York. As okay. I was as I was going into the Lincoln Tunnel, I saw that incredible skyline of New York, and I just I just saw a nuclear bomb going off in New York. I don't know. It just kind of gave me the willies, and uh, that's what I was thinking. But it was wow. uh, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But it's a beautiful song, though. Thank you. Thank you very much. I love the and the, the choir in it. And I was like, that's just perfect. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us. Do you want us to know any other uh, things about your career? Some maybe something well, I, I, you might not even think about. There's... Well, just that I appreciate the, the, my relationship with the fans the most. I, mm-hmm. I really do. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, they have really uh, uh, been with me for all this time, and uh, uh, they make it all happen. So I'm, I'm very, very thankful to the fans. Have you met several generations of you know of fans? I uh, sure backstage have. Or, yeah. I sure have. Every show, and uh, so it's really it's really wonderful, and I'm very very happy, as I said, to the good Lord and the fans for for everything. You've recorded Christian music, and um, you said that coming out of the '60s and '70s, you were getting closer to um, God and whatnot. Yes. And over the years, I, I know you, you had battled addictions, and you were able to overcome. Yeah, it's been 38 and, years now. Well, 30. Awesome. Well, 1986, so that would be 37 years. Wow. And I was going to ask, in the music industry, it seems to be kind of prevalent, the drugs and the alcohol and whatever else go along mm-hmm. with it. And then I'm sure you've seen many friends who've passed along because oh God, of that. yes. Do you think that we will ever learn, um, uh, uh, you know, if from... Your your generation and others, um, I can even go back as far as Billie Holiday. When will we actually learn that, you know, that's not the way to go? I mean, well, we've lost so many rappers in the last four or five years just because of that. Well, you know, it's unfortunate, but there are the people who are in this business for the long haul uh, have a couple of traits that are really unfortunate. One of them is it's a, it's a business full of desperate people, and uh, the kind of desperation I'm talking about that uh, of of making it and uh, having it being in over your head, uh, which you always are. Nobody can, nobody really understands what it's like to suddenly have the kind of success that, uh, you know, making it as a... It, being a rock and roller, being a rock star is something that... It's a job opportunity that everybody wants, that craves. And um, because there are no rules, there's nobody to say no. That's the big problem. 
it's it, it, as I said, full of desperate and oftentimes immature people who I, I know because I was one of them. And you uh, develop some very bad habits because you want to keep it all going. You want the party to keep going, and you uh, oftentimes have feelings of inferiority, like you're not good enough to be where you are, and uh, you know it's juggling all the all the balls at once, and so many things. Panic if if things don't go right. Um, feelings of inferiority if if you're not. Uh, you know, you can be awful depressed, awful easy in this business. And wow. you got to learn that it's a whimsical business. It's it's a game. And to people who take it too serious, it's destructive, toxic and destructive. And you've got to understand what it is, that it's a game and that, you know, You've got to learn to balance. Self-discipline is what I'm talking about. And it's hard to come by because everybody wants to tell you how great you are, and even when you're not. And everybody, mm. everybody, and you, you, you've got to know, you've got to have a firm grasp on reality and comfortable in your own skin. And that's something that, is an acquired taste. That's not something that, that's something you have to learn, unfortunately, by negative things. And I was just very fortunate that I didn't destroy myself. I was amazed that nobody really knew, um, I never got a bad reputation. I was just so fortunate and that's just the good lord looking out for me but the bottom line is that this business is uh can be very tough on you if you let it it's such a double-edged sword so uh, that's all i can really say about it is that you know get right with god and uh see things as they really are i don't know what else to say what other advice you can give well, I think that's great advice, you know, and because you're you're here with us, many of your peers, well, they didn't last the '60s or the right. '70s, right? <laughs> you know, um, I know. And, um, We've and, got a lot of casualties. Yeah, and I thought that I'd ask you that because you know you're one of the few of a generation that had had that type of success and was able to uh, clean up your act, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Yes, indeed. That's, very, very few people um, have been able to last that long. And, well, you know, yeah, over 40 years of being, you know, almost 40 years of being uh, clean and uh, still here and able to speak about your career and still able to get on stage because a lot of people can't even do that. Well, I've been very, very blessed and very fortunate and uh, uh, don't think I don't know it. Amen. So you'll be traveling. Is it just in America, or will you be overseas too? I'm not. I'm. I don't really want to go overseas right now. Okay. I'd like to stay at home. I'd like to stay in America. I think that uh, uh, 
not just because it's dangerous overseas, but it's just I I like I like working in America. Mm-hmm. I really do. I like the people. I like the fans. I like the. I just at least for right now, I'm, I might change my mind. I might go overseas when the movie comes out. Mm-hmm. But right now, I just want to stay put. Okay. Well. Thanks so much for all the great information and TonyDreams.com. Well, we it was really we, nice talking to you. You're a very nice lady, and I I really love talking to you. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. I take that as a a major compliment. I try to to make my interviews interesting, and I wanted to end with this. Uh, Live and kicking was a group that you you know were able to produce uh, as a singer and a you know pr- performer. Do you like the production side or the performing and singing side or both? I love both because I, 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 uh, I, I really crave both. Those are the two things I love to do. I love making records and I love performing on stage. And uh, so, you know, that's, <laughs> that's my thing. That's what I do. I... I uh, and I'm I'm thankful that I got to do what I love doing my whole life. Great interview. Thanks so much, and God bless. God bless you. Take care. You've been listening to Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright May 19th, 2023.